You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Kotz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to talk about some of the biggest albums of the season, including two releases from the Jackson family. Then it's my turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. What you're hearing is a little bit of Miles Davis from his electric period in the early 70s, the On the Corner record. And the reason we're playing it is to honor the producer of that record and a whole batch of Miles Davis releases from the late 60s and early 70s, a producer by the name of Tio Macero. Mr. Macero died a few days ago in New York at the age of 82. And Jim, the reason we're bringing this guy up is not so much for what he did in the jazz world, which was revolutionary. There was no other producer like him. And the influence he had was in the way he produced those Miles Davis records. Before Tio Macero came along, producers essentially would set up microphones in a room and record a jazz band live. And and that would be the released record. That would be the finished product, essentially a high-fidelity recording of jazz musicians in their natural element. What Macero did with Miles Davis' recordings is he would record everything that Miles Davis would record with these extraordinary bands, people like Jack DeJanette and Joe Zawinall and John McLaughlin playing together in a room in real time, extended jam sessions going on for hours at a time sometimes, and then uh, meticulously, with a razor blade, mm-hmm. edit yeah. <laughs> these two-inch tapes into finished compositions. So essentially he was arranging and composing after Davis and his musicians would get through uh, as part of the production job. Jazz people hated what Macero did with Miles Davis's recordings, the idea that the studio and a razor blade and the editing process could be part of the finished composition was anathema to any jazz purist. But musicians from the rock world, people like Brian Eno, Radiohead, Can, Parliament Funkadelic, Jim O'Rourke, Prince, they all took notice of what Macero was doing with these extraordinary Miles recordings and saying, we can apply that to what we're doing in our studios as well. The whole sure, idea I mean, the recording studio, yeah. recording studio's an instrument. Who says it can't swing? Absolutely. It's not that the Beatles hadn't explored some of these ideas before, but the kind of music that Miles was recording at that time, that this fusion of funk and jazz and rock and avant-garde music was really blowing people's minds. And then to find out later that Macero played such a heavy role in the way it sounded and the way those compositions came together really had an ear-bending effect on rock music. And although Macero's influence cannot be heard in jazz recordings at all today because basically they're still pretty much live recordings, uh, to this day rock musicians are emulating what Macero and Davis were doing in the late 60s, early 70s. We heard a musician in our studio just a few weeks ago, Ken Vandermark. Mm Mm-hmm. 
singing the praises of On the Corner Ear Miles Davis and uh, Tio Macero, the, the great producer part of those sessions. Here's a little bit of Miles Davis and Tio Macero from the On the Corner sessions from the early 70s on Sound Opinions. That's a little bit of Black Satin from the Miles Davis record On the Corner in tribute to the producer of that record, Teal Macero, dead at the age of 82. That is a little bit of Beat It 2008. The version of the Michael Jackson song is performed by Fergie the 25th anniversary edition of Michael Jackson's biggest selling album, the 1982 release Thriller, is now out with a whole bunch of remixes on it from people like Fergie and Kanye West and Akon and Will I Am. The original album sold 104 million copies worldwide, one of the biggest selling records of all time, certainly in the top five in the U.S. It keeps jousting with the Eagles, greatest yeah. hits for the biggest selling album in U.S. history. Jackson again repackaging his past in order to set the table for what promises to be his comeback year. There is a new studio album in the works. There is supposedly a reunion tour with the Jackson 5 in the works. And now we have this 25th anniversary edition of Thriller to consider basically the original album with a whole bunch of remixes on it. The real news here is the fact that all these contemporaries of Jackson, people who have adored and glorified his music and and used some of it as inspiration for their own music are now paying tribute to him with these remixes. And in fact, that may be the reason that a lot of people are buying this record or would want to buy it, is Mm -hmm. to hear what Kanye West might have done with a song like Billie Jean, a classic song like that, or to hear Fergie sing Beat It, for God's (laughs) sakes. So before we talk about whether these remixes are any good or not, let's hear what Kanye West did with Billie Jean 2008 on Sound Opinions.
That is Billie Jean 2008, Kanye West's remixed version of the song from Michael Jackson's Thriller, part of this new Thriller 25 anniversary edition. Greg, you just hear Kanye basically plodding through that song, killing the groove that was there, putting in one that's really heavy-handed and adding some strings, not really doing much of anything. Certainly, Michael Jackson can be toyed with in very interesting ways. We talked only a couple of weeks ago about this Rhymefest record where he constructs these dialogues with the troubled Michael Jackson and has Jackson be his mentor. Uh, Very, very funny stuff. Nobody on this uh, 25th anniversary edition is doing anything nearly that creative. Certainly not Will I am, who I usually defend, but I I can't uh, wave his flag this week. There's two issues here. Is this reissue worth owning? Well, absolutely no. No. (laughs) And then there's the greater, what can we say about Thriller a quarter of a century on? I hadn't really listened beginning to end to this album for a long time because there's a couple of problems here that we can't really blame Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson for. On the other hand, they played into it. Number one, this was the beginning of the end of the music industry. Now, it is quite clear. In terms of the Hollywood blockbuster mentality, the Star Wars mentality, the you gotta sell 50 or 100 million albums to make any music worthwhile mentality coming into the music business started here. (laughs) I mean, how many people talk about the videos? More yeah. than they talk about the music. Right. Jackson had made a great album before this, a fairly straightforward disco record with Off the Wall, in which you really heard his strengths as a singer, as a genre blender, as a songwriter. Those are still here to some degree, but there's also some pandering. You hear him writing songs like the title track, Thriller, I think, with the video in mind, with, with a massive multimedia production in mind more than the song. Well, you know, he was a complete product of his age and he understood what the age wanted and needed at the time and those you're right the videos are in a lot of ways outlasting the songs you cannot listen to Billie Jean or Beat It without seeing those dance moves in the video on your head you can't hear Billie Jean without seeing him do the moonwalk on that 25th anniversary special which by the way that all those videos are included as part of this package and they're probably the best reason to own this package the remixes are horrible how can (laughs) Kanye West take the bass line yeah, out of Billie Jean. I mean, that's like taking the smile off the Mona Lisa, for God's sakes. It's like the most important part of the song. He took it out. I wish somebody remakes. had taken Paul McCartney out of The Girl Is Mine. Now, that would have been an improvement. That would have been a good one. You know, it's an up-and-down record. I agree with you. I think uh, Off the Wall was a stronger beginning-to-end record. The high points of this record, though, are so high. There's some really weak moments on this record. And I have to say, throw the remixes in there. This is really, really overselling something that you don't need. It's a high-priced, deluxe package, 48-page color booklet. Stick with the original nine-song album if you're one of the 104 million people that already own it. Who doesn't own this record? I mean, that's the thing. This is just more Jackson product out there. And let's not forget there have been two abortive Jackson comeback attempts in the years since he was first indicted and tried and acquitted uh, on on having sex with minors. Will this guy ever be able to salvage what was once a brilliant career? You can say it's unfair of us to bring that up every time we talk about an artist like Michael Jackson, and yet his art has been dominated. What little art he's made over the last decade plus has been dominated with that issue. You know, I need to be forgiven. You need to remember I'm great despite what I've been accused of. 
one of the things I always loved about his sister, who was out this week with a new album, Discipline, Janet Jackson, is that uh, the first third or half of her career was about standing up for herself. You know, there were those great records crafted with Jam and Lewis. Who can ever forget records like Control? Janet Jackson is not a singer. Not a great singer at yeah. all. First made uh, her big vocal debut on one of the tracks on Thriller, lending Michael some backing vocals. And then she has this career of her own, which is really uh, established on pluck and the desire to, like, I want to step out of this incredibly insane shadow of my family and my brother and establish myself. What has she been doing lately? Ever since the infamous Nipplegate incident, mm. the wardrobe malfunction, she's made two albums since then, 20 Years Old in 2006 and Demita Joe in 2004, which was part of uh, why she was on the Super Bowl that year to expose her music. Both of them obsessed with sex in a way that she really wasn't at any point earlier in her career. I think the same can be true of the new Discipline. She's working once again with her husband. We didn't know he was her husband for quite some time, Jermaine Dupree, as well as uh, producers like Rodney Jerkins and Nayo. She's got uh, some impressive guests on there. Missy Elliott stops by to do some rapping. Uh, the great guitarist Ernie Isley stops by to play on a few tracks. What are we getting out of this? Let's hear a track here, and then we'll uh, come back and talk a little bit. This is the title track, Discipline from uh, Janet Jackson's 10th studio album, if I'm counting correctly, on Sound Opinions. That is the title track from Discipline, the 10th Janet Jackson studio album. All you need is a riding crop and some bondage gear, and you're all set after that song, Jim, is what I can say. Oh, man. Uh, you know, Daddy, I've misbehaved. Oh, my goodness. You're right. Janet uh, has been obsessed with erotica on her last few records. Her records seem to be becoming more one-dimensional as she grows older. There was a wide palette of stuff that she was writing about on her early records, you know, self-empowerment, racial Mm -hmm. unity. I mean, she was a woman with a lot of energy and exuberance, and, 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 you know, she wanted to make her own name and own place in the world. And she was collaborating 
with two producers, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who were in much the same sort of situation. They'd been under the thumb of Prince for yeah. a number of years, and they, too, wanted to establish their own reputations. It was a great combination. They made a series of really fine records in the 80s and early 90s. But Janet Jackson has lost uh, the inspiration in, in recent years, and she's wondering why these records aren't selling. Her last two records both sold under a million copies. Disasters, which, yeah. Which, for an artist who has sold over 100 million records in her career, that is a huge, huge drop-off. And I think a lot of it is because people are just bored with this sex kitten routine. There's nothing wrong with singing about sex, but that seems to be the only thing here. And the the thing that's bothering me about this record, Jim, Mm -hmm. is she sounds so removed from it. That robot voice, those mechanized beats, it's really not adding to the idea of being sexy. She's singing about sex, but she doesn't sound sexy. Well, you ain't kidding. I mean, there's this running thing. The last couple of albums she's made have had these uh, interludes, these skits that uh, double the size of the album with these short tracks linking the songs. Uh, On this one, she keeps talking to uh, her her uh, computer Kyoko yeah <laughs> you know and it's like oh my god that's dreadful Kyoko is that you yes good morning Miss Janet how are you feeling today I feel so much better now thank you Kyoko do you want to talk about it Miss Janet no it's time I move on to bigger and better things and then on top of it, when you add the S&M stuff, I mean, since when did sadomasochism, bondage and discipline become like the last refuge of the aging diva with nothing else to say? <laughs> Madonna patented that, yeah. and now everybody else is trying to follow in those footsteps. It's sad. It's pathetic, especially, Greg, and this brings us back to her brother, Michael. When you consider the insane family upbringing that these two mm-hmm. children of Gary, Indiana had, and the accusations that have been made about the things that happened in that house, and, and what is quite obviously the psychological damage manifested in the way that they grew up, whether it's because they were child stars or whether it's because their father was somewhat abused. I mean, whatever happened to the Jackson clan, Michael Jackson, a century from now, when people look at the art of our era and they say, my God, how did that man literally and metaphorically melt down in full view of the world the way that he did? And now his sister is following in those same footsteps. It's really, it really makes me sad. Yeah, it does. And especially when you consider what these two artists represented to uh, young people when they were first coming up. I mean, they were, they were truly inspirations. You know, the young Michael, the young Janet were inspirational artists in addition to being great artists. But it, I can't say that about either one of them now. I'd have to say Discipline is a trash at record. It, it is not a record I would ever want to listen to again. And Michael Jackson's original version of Thriller, that was a classic record for its time. But the remixed version, my God, what a train wreck. That's also a trash hit. We're going to get a lot of use on this review show out of the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale. And I would have to say I agree on these first two records with you, Mr. Cott. Janet Jackson's Discipline is a trash hit, and so is Thriller 25. <laughs> That is a quadruple trash it to start the show, Jim. Hopefully we'll find some music that we like later on. And uh, coming up next from Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, records from Sons and Daughters and Erica Badu.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is This Gift, the title track from the second Sons and Daughters album. Scottish Quartet out of Glasgow. Got a lot of recognition with a debut EP in 2003-04, and then were named as the opening band on Franz Ferdinand's 2004 tour. Remember Franz Ferdinand, Jim? They were oh, yeah. a very hot band at the time. So the, the new op- wave of new wave. Exactly. The opening slot on their tour was much coveted. Sons and Daughters got that slot, and uh, that opened them up to a whole new audience. What this band does is essentially take early rockabilly, blues, country murder ballads, and spark them up with those co-ed harmony vocals, very reminiscent of X, the John Doe, Xene Zervenka dialogues that would go on in the music of that Los Angeles punk band from the early 80s. You're hearing that same sort of thing in the interplay between Scott Patterson and Adele Bethel. The new album, This Gift, focuses much more on Bethel's as the lead vocalist with Patterson in more of a background role. And uh, here's a great example of that. Uh, The first track on the album, Guilt Complex, from Sons and Daughters on Sound Opinions. Guilt Complex from Sons and Daughters. Uh, the album is called This Gift. Greg, what a great track. And really, we could have played any song on this album, and uh, it would have made me just as happy. I really thought that Sons and Daughters were a second-tier entry in that Domino Records new wave of new wave sound that uh, also brought us Franz Ferdinand, the Arctic Monkeys, Clinic. I mean, they were good. But yeah. they, you know, they were this Celtic version of X, and that's okay. But there was something missing. And here they laid bare exactly what was missing, and they filled in the blanks. Mm-hmm. You know, for one thing, the rhythms are 
relentless. The rhythm section is like bouncing off the walls, literally, on caffeine, speed, or both. <laughs> they can barely contain themselves from one three-minute blast to another. I think moving Bethel into a very prominent lead vocalist role was a smart move. She's got like this Debbie Harry quality, but with much more range. She's focusing on what's making her angry. She's referencing all this cool kind of pop culture of the past, from Sylvia Plath to 60s cinema, in en route to uh, putting down the vapidity of current pop culture, you know, the kind of reality TV world we're living in. Mm -hmm. And along the way, the hooks are maximized. You've got suede guitarist Bernard Butler producing here, and they keep building to these wonderful woo-ah-hoo chants in every song, song after song, and you want to jump up and down and scream and go woo with them. And it's just, I love this record. I agree that the role that Bernard Butler played on this record cannot be underestimated. I think he really brought out a pop element in this band that was sort of buried on the previous records. He took their sound, and he really didn't tinker with it much. He just sort of focused it a little bit more. And as you said, taking some of those wordless harmonies and turning them into hooks Mm -hmm. that you can't forget later on. Also, putting Bethel in more of a front woman's role. Really smart move on his part. The hooks are just maximized. It is a relentless record. People are looking for a breather. You're not going to get it on this record, folks. It's just going to be one slammer after another. Breathing is overrated. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what's there not to love here? I mean, here's a band I think was um, drawing on all these cool sources, much like the White Stripes, recognizing what was cool about Roots music and updating it for a contemporary audience. And now they've got more of a pop hook element in their music. I, I think this is the best record yet, and uh, it's a buy it all the way for me. Double buy it, Greg. Right on. Uh, how's that for a change in rhythms after Sons and Daughters, Greg? That is the Australian artist Sia with Little Black Sandals from her new album, Some People Have Real Problems. You have seen this album, <laughs> even if you haven't heard it, because it is uh, Sia is the first non-heritage artist being sold on the Hear Music label, which is distributed in a very popular coffee chain who doesn't need me to plug them here. You know, their first releases were Sir Paul McCartney and Joni Mitchell and Kenny G, and now this artist. Who is this woman? She's 32-year-old Sia Furla first started to make her mark in London, especially uh, as part of that sort of acid jazz scene. Scored some hits on her own, but also did some vocal work for the group Zero Seven, which really kind of put her on the map. She's been making an invasion of the U.S. via uh, carefully placed songs on the soundtracks of shows like The O.C. and Six Feet Under. This is clearly a woman on the rise. Her last record in 2006, Color the Small One, was sort of a downbeat effort. This one is something different. Let's hear a track that I I think is fairly typical from it, and then we'll give our opinions. This is a song called Academia, in which she's uh, kind of uh, having a laugh at the indie rock underground. Here's Sia on Sound Opinions. You can be my alphabet and I will be your calculator And together we'll work out on the escalator I will time you as you run up the down And you'll measure my footsteps as I bludger this town The mean of our heights is divided by the nights just times by the daggers and the root of all our fights the pass of your poem just to sway me in your knowing and the beauty of the word is that you don't have to show it oh i could play 
Academia from the new Sia record called Some People Have Real Problems, her third studio record, and very much different from her previous studio releases as well as her work with uh, Massive Attack and Zero Seven and all these other side projects that she's been working on. Before she was, uh, reminded me of one of those breathy trip-hop sensualist, you know, a kind of a, a portis head uh, wannabe yeah. uh, on those earlier tracks. And I don't like that sound. I, I kind of thought it was kind of cool and understated, and it worked really well in that HBO Six Feet Under episode. <laughs> you know, people are going, wow, what was that song? That's that's really how she got noticed in this country. Now we find out that she's more of a uh, a pop singer with more of a gutsier soul undercurrent in her voice. And, and that's interesting. I mean, she's got a good voice. Um, my problem here, Jim, is the songwriting is pretty weak. I think the hooks are, are pretty flimsy. I think the songs are really soft in terms of the arrangement ideas. They're propped up with this string and brass section. She's got some high-priced backing vocalists. I mean, she's got Beck on here. She's got actors on here like Jason Lee singing backing vocalists. She's got this hotshot producer, Jimmy Hogarth, who worked with uh, James Blunt and people of that ilk. This is sort of a tarted-up pop record that just isn't very good. It puts me to sleep. Uh, and i got to say, it's, it, is, it is hands down one of the worst album covers we have what, ever now, seen. What are you reviewing the album cover for? Let's start with the album cover because that is really bad. The, the now, music you, inside has got to be really good to make up for this album cover, and it's not. I don't critique the way you dress over She's here, draw- Mr. Sloppy. drawing with magic marker on her face. Oh, who you know? cares? I mean, who it's, cares? It's awful. Look, that is the last refuge of the critic who has nothing to say, <laughs> okay? You know I have zero tweet tolerance. I cannot stomach or abide by Feist, nor can I take... Kimya Dawson of the Moldy Peaches, all right, both of whom have been ubiquitous in pop culture of late. I think that the things that people say they like, including you say you like about Feist, are here in spades in Sia. I mean, the woman really can sing, and I think she's got a witty, witty eye for social observation, whether it's taking on the indie rock scene in academia or uh, or pondering her own death in Death by Chocolate. Uh, you know, it, it, not for nothing does she cover Ray Davies' I Go to Sleep and do a wonderful wonderful job on it. There's that wonderful uh, British Empire tradition of, of sociological observation as pop song. I think she's playing into it. I came at this record as a real breath of fresh air. I'm disinclined to like anything that that coffee chain that will not be named wants to sell me besides coffee. I don't want to get my music in the coffee store. I want to get my coffee in the coffee store. But this album won me over, Greg, and I think you're not being fair to it at all. Uh, I think I'm being very fair to it. I think it's a very affected record in a lot of ways. I think uh, when it's overproduced, and I, I think she's very affected in the way she sings. Those slurry jazz vocals and Soon Will Be Found, that really bothers me for some reason. The children's chorus in that first single, the uh, Little Black Sandal song, you gotta annoying. Love a chorus. What a Come gimmick. You know, what the, big you horn, the big horn fan, fanfare yeah, and electric horn. bird. No, horn. no. It's, it, it's, it's overdone, overproduced I'm, I'm for giving, not very good songs. Some people have real problems, and you were one of them. I am giving Sia's record a buy it. I like this record. Boring, boring record. Trash it. To tell us what you think of these reviews or anything else we discuss on Sound Opinions, to tell Greg why he's wrong, call 888-859-1800 or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. We'll be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of the latest by Erica Badu and Black Mountain, and I'll have a Desert Island Jukebox pick.
excitement. More everything. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is the opening track of the new album by Erica Badu. It's called American Promise, the song. The album is quite wordily called New America Part 1, Fourth World War. It's out right now from Motown, and we've been waiting for this for a long time. Time, Craig. Mm. Um, Erica has not given us a proper studio album since Mama's Gun in 2000. We had one kind of uh, inflated five-song EP that was really just a bunch of jamming in between. Erica Badu first rose to prominence in the mid-90s. She was the female version of D'Angelo. Both of them came at us 1995-1997 as the, the leading proponents of a sound that would be called neo-soul or natural R&B, signifying a return to the 70s gritty, funk, soulful sounds of people like Curtis Mayfield and Marvin Gaye, bringing R&B out of the sterile recording studio sound of your R. Kelly's and Usher's, reconnecting with political content and, and real sweat and groove. Her debut album sold more than three million copies in the U.S., Baduism. She was the earth mother. She was, she was natural. She was, she was spiritual. She was a diva, a goddess, and <laughs> a little bit ethereal and, and wacky uh, in some ways. It was not hard to believe that one of the reasons she's been missing for the last eight years was she was concentrating on raising her children and apparently being becoming a Reiki practitioner. The New Age healing art has something to do with hot stones and rubbing, and I I don't know, okay? (laughs) A lot of people didn't think we were going to hear from Erica Badu again, and now comes what she's saying is uh, the first of two original albums that she intends to put out this year. She's working with people like the Sara uh, collective of producers, Mad Lib, and her longtime collaborator, Amir Questlove Thompson. Uh, what is she giving us? Well, I don't want to tip my hand. Uh, we just have to listen to some of this, and then I think we're going to have some fun reviewing it. This is a song called The Healer, which is dealing with nothing less than the concept that uh, we're at a point in time where hip-hop is more powerful than God and government. One of many heady ideas Erica Badu is talking about on New America Part 1. Here it is, the healer on Sound Opinions. Coming, coming to you loud and clear. Like the brain everyone's attention. Yeah. 
Healer from Erica Badu and her new record, New America, Part 1, Fourth World War. Jim, whether Erica knows it or not, she is part of a uh, splinter movement from that neo-soul movement that she started or helped start in the mid-90s. Uh, she has since reneged on that term. She hates it. She doesn't want to be classified as a neo-soul artist, and I think she's been striving for the last seven, eight years to craft music that is consciously moving away from such easy definitions. But with people like D'Angelo on Voodoo and The Roots on their Phrenology record and some of uh, Michelle Andagio Cello's recent work, I think Erica Badu on New America is, is creating a murkier more psychedelic brand of funk and avant-garde music that owes a lot to, here it is again, Miles Davis's On the Corner mm. from the early 70s, Herbie Hancock's Sextent records from that same period of time, these kind of weird melanges of records that people really didn't know how to categorize and, in fact, are only now starting to come to terms with. They're only now starting to appreciate and understand how to listen to on the Corner by Miles Davis or, or Herbie Hancock's Sextant record. And I think this record is in that same kind of category. This is not an easy listen. This oh, no. Is, she's, no. She's moved away from those melodies and hooks that she was writing earlier in her career, the more straightforward jazz thing. She was getting a lot of Billie Holiday comparisons, which, again, rankled her. And now into this heavier kind of mood pieces, these grooves, these drones. You hear the triangle chiming in there, those hand claps sound like they're underwater you know yeah. the vocals sound really recessed and and druggy very cool sound but not accessible there's no singles on this record in fact the one single from the record was sort of tacked on Honey. Uh, at the yeah. end because it didn't fit yeah. with everything else on this record you know i think i'm gonna have to listen to this record another 50 times before i oh, fully understand what's going on here that's but what's I brilliant think it, about i it. think it's really cool for that reason this is the first masterpiece of 2008 this is a brilliant brilliant album and it's going to take you some time to plumb all of its depths i think she has finally made the record we've been waiting for from d'angelo since 2000 with voodoo yeah <laughs> he just disappeared he hasn't given us anything and here comes this record which if you imagine george clinton and funkadelic jamming with curtis Mayfield in New Orleans with a sampler and a really kicking psychedelic rock band, that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. This is a complicated record thematically. It's pondering black-on-black violence in a song like Soldier and how drugs enslave both the dealers and the buyers in songs like That Hump and The Cell. She's she's all over the map with her uh, vocal style from that little kind of girly sing-song that we heard to a really throaty, powerful growl. The music is all over the place. This is just a brilliant, dense, wonderful record. I, I think she shouldn't be ashamed to be called neo-soul. This is a new kind of soul movement. It's as if the, the innovations of Mama's Gun and Voodoo uh, you know, were just put on hold for seven years, and now somebody's picking up thread again. Well, she's really free. I mean, she's totally stepped out of any commercial radio boundaries. There, there's no radio station that's going to play this, this record, I no. think. It, they're going to look at it and go, what is this? And I think that's what's beautiful about it. Absolutely. She's creating her own category. It's a buy-it record as far as I'm concerned, but don't be expecting another Erica Badu record like Badawism. This is a whole new thing that she's on to. No, you got to buy it and you got to live with it and it's going to make some demands of, of you, but uh, it's going to pay off.
That is Stormy High from the new Black Mountain record, In the Future, the second Black Mountain record. Uh, Black Mountain, a quintet from Vancouver, British Columbia. They are uh, very much into that stoner rock movement that encompasses bands like Fu Manchu and Caius and High on Fire, Monster Magnet. They are the second coming of that wave of bands that celebrated the psychedelic aspects of heavy metal music of the 70s. Uh, you can practically see the wallet chains swinging from these guys and the shag carpets <laughs> and, the, and the bong spill on yes, that shag yes. carpet. That's what this music evokes. That's what it's all about. It's not meant to be futuristic in any way. It, it really is an homage to an era, a long-lost era, with some contemporary lyrical concerns. I mean, they're talking about the world around them, and, and that's what makes this music relevant for today. Black Mountain, one of those uh, bands that is being celebrated by the, the indie rock kids these days. It's one of those bands that has found a, a niche alongside Queens of the Stone Age and other heavy bands of today, even though they're playing music that you know harkens back to the, the dawn of heavy metal and Black Sabbath. Let's hear a track from their new album, In the Future. It's a three-part song. Can't possibly do it justice <laughs> in the time we're allotted. But trust me, it's an eight-minute, three-part suite called Tyrants on Sound Opinions. Oh, man. 
Boy, is that great stuff. Tyrants, <laughs> an eight-minute song from the second album by uh, Black Mountain. It's called In the Future, the album. It's not even the longest or druggiest <laughs> song on the album, Greg. There's the 17-minute opus, Bright Lights. I mean, what can you, you – look, either you get music like this or you don't. <laughs> and if you don't, you know, I pity you, really, because you, you should. I mean, this is joy. This is just pure headbanging. You may mock me, but, you know, you're not really alive if you don't occasionally want to just bang your head and, and swirl your hair even if you don't have any hair. <laughs> I, I, I like this band uh, not only for the way they sound. I love that heavy sound. They're hearkening back to something that uh, I think all of us have heard at some point in our life and really liked. I mean, you, you, you're right. There's a dividing line. You either love this or you hate you this. You get it. Or no you're on in-between. the bus or you're not. You exactly. know, it's the Kessie thing. But I, I think this band is, is very smart. They're addressing very much what's going on uh, in the world around them. You're not telling me you sit there and listen to the lyrics. You know, I think the lyrics are cool. <laughs> They'll kill us all. Let's hide ourselves together down under the stairs. Don't you leave. So while you're kicking all your worries around and keeping faith down in the underground, the fire in the sky, the death at your door, there's all these images of sort of being in a underground bunker hiding from the the maelstrom that is going on outside your front door. And I think they're talking about the situation in the world today, the war in the world today, and, and the fact that, you know, this music is their last refuge uh, against what's going on. Let's create art in the midst of all this chaos and hell that's outside our front door. So I think it's kind of a beautiful record in that way. This is not reinventing rock and roll, but I like this record a lot. I think uh, for what it says about today and the way it's performed, this is a cliche, Jim. Headphone record, this is a great headphone record. You, it works really well with those speakers cranked up. And, man, you, you, you sink into that 17-minute uh, psychedelic track that they play in this record, and you go, you're, you've I, gone somewhere else. You're on a trip somewhere else. I have no response to I I'm still stupefied at your ability to quote lyrics by this band. Mm-hmm. I, I admire you in a new way, Mr. Cott. I mean, this is just, you need to own this record. You should have this record. I think it wouldn't – if this was the only thing on your plate, <laughs> it would not be a balanced meal. I mean, but my idea of like dying and going to heaven would be an Erica Badu <laughs> Black Mountain tour, right, with like four or five hours in a great theater. Actually, take out the theater chairs and put in bean bags. Yeah. You know, now that would be a night I'd want to be part of. This is a buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible, one of us takes a trip to the desert island and picks a record we cannot live without. And this week, it's Jim DeRogatis' turn to pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. Greg, you're going to have a hard time believing this, but I chose the song I'm about to play even before we decided to review the Black Mountain album. I was actually sick as a dog last week, and I was laying in bed trying to think of a Desert Island jukebox pick and uh, what songs in rock history are great about fevers. You know, I mean, obviously there's Fever, right, by Peggy Lee. Sure. Actually, a great version of it by Brian Eno, too, right? But that was too predictable, and you'd laugh at me and say I can't talk about Eno. So I thought of this song by Blue Oyster Cult, probably the coolest band ever with an umlaut, said to have been suggested to them by the great rock critic Richard Meltzer. Meltzer was a great, great rock critic who went to college with these guys when they were still a psychedelic blues band called Soft White Underbelly. They morph into Blue Oyster Cult, and uh, they they were the 
thinking man's heavy metal band of the 70s. They had people contributing lyrics to their songs like Patti Smith and Richard Meltzer wrote the lyrics to this song. We get this a lot. You know, rock critics are people who criticize they can't actually create. Well, Meltzer wrote a great song here. I mean, you could look at it as I did from my sickbed, that this is a song about suffering from a fever. You could look at it as this is a song about the band's been on the road too long and and they're falling apart and they're losing their sanity. And I'm talking about Burning For You, which was a number one hit. I mean, probably the band is best known for Don't Fear the Reaper, in addition to this very sophisticated metal sound where they took the jangle of the birds, amplified it, and gave it a really hard groove behind it. You have these very smart lyrics and this whole package of this sort of weird, otherworldly science fiction. I mean, you know, basically bottom line, all right? I wanted to hear Burning For You by Blue Oyster Cult on Sound Opinions. Immortal Blue Oyster Cult, burning for you. What a great song, right, Greg? You know, you surprised me with Meltzer writing that one. I knew that Meltzer had written songs for them. I didn't realize he'd written that one. And that 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 is one of my favorite Blue Oyster Cult songs. Timeless. Who timeless. Can't love that? Timeless masterpiece. What have we got on the show next week? A timeless artist, Bob Mould, is going to be in the studio with us to uh, perform some songs and uh, submit to a patented Sound Opinions interview. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous. Our Sound Opinions production team is Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. Our intern is Dave the Intern Maller. And our executive producer and fearless leader is Tori Southside Malatia. Many people don't know an umlaut over that O.
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Uh, hi, folks. This is Kevin from Chicago. Good show on Revolver, as always. I'm as much a geek as anyone. It is one of the better records that ever came out. To lead a better life, I need my love to be here. Here. Making each day of the One thing that's important, I think, to note that was not noted is the length of it. Just as a pop rock record, it's about a 35-minute record. It might be as much as 37 minutes, but it's really brief and packs a lot of punch in that brevity. Even shorter if you had the U.S. version, which, if you guys do, please send me an 11-song version of that record. Thanks. Bye-bye. I wonder everywhere if she's beside me, I know I need this is Pat from Olympia, Washington. And um, I just heard you guys mention the hype soundtrack, and then you played some wipers, and I can't tell you how excited I am that you guys played the wipers. But i got to set the record straight, because the wipers were from Portland, not Seattle. You know, a lot is made of the Seattle sound, but really, the Seattle sound from the 90s and from the 80s came from a lot of transplants. You know, Nirvana was from the Aberdeen area, not Seattle. And to to illustrate this point, I I want to recount a story that a friend of mine, Al Larson, who's from Some Velvet Sidewalk, and he's actually in that movie, Hype, he said that when he was growing up in Eugene, Oregon, which is south of Portland, All these bands would come through from Portland and Seattle, and he said that the bands from Portland had their amp, and they had their guitar, and that they were ready to go. And he said bands from Seattle had their amp, and they had their guitar, and they had their keyboard, and they had their outfit, and they had their hair, and they were never ready to go. Anyway, uh, love your show. Thanks very much. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Brian from New Jersey, and I am calling about the Juno soundtrack. Now, I can understand you guys not digging it. The Moldy Peaches stuff, you know, it's not for everybody. But after, in one breath, lambasting the Grammys for being such a conservative group, shouldn't you be happy that a soundtrack featuring Bell and Sebastian and Mott the Hoople and the Kinks is number one on the Billboard chart? People are not buying the crap the Grammys tell us is the best music of the year. People are making their own decisions. Now, whether you agree with those decisions or not is totally up to you. And I love your show, and I love the fact that 
I simultaneously praise and hate listening to it because I get so worked up one way or the other based on what you guys say. But I think really you missed the point here. And the point is that people are deciding they want to listen to something different, that Herbie Hancock is not the best record of the year, and I, for one, am very happy about it. Thank you very much. Love the show. Keep me getting angry. And have a good one. Bye-bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.